Dear Jewish brothers and sisters, the New York Times hates you, and I'm going to tell you why. Emma Jo Morris is on the show to unpack the Grey Lady's latest hit piece on the Jewish community. And Avraham Fried is here. He's literally here in the land of Israel, and I had a couple of moments to talk to him following 14 sold-out shows. This is the Weekly Squeeze. I'm your talented and humble host, Hanalem Music, coming at you from the land of Israel with episode 68 of The Squeeze, where we talk about Judaism, politics, and everything in between. Plus, I bring you the best guests. And today is no exception. Journalist Emma Jo Morris is here from Breitbart News, following a terrific piece that she wrote, pushing back at the New York Times for once again deciding to feature the Orthodox Jewish community in a bad light. Not about the Hispanics, not about the African Americans, not about the LGBTQ community, not about the Muslims. God forbid we should criticize the Muslims in the newspaper, but only about the Jews, because the Jews, well, were just too Jewy for the New York Times. Now, I have to admit, I do pay $2.99 a month so I can have access to all this anti-Semitism <laughs> that they call journalism. Um, and the reason I do that is because I feel it's important for me to keep my finger on the pulse of who is creating all of this divisiveness and to bring you that information so you, you, my friends, should not spend $2.99 on the New York Times. I am taking one for the team. And if it makes you feel any better, I'm using money that I usually spend on garbage bags so that I can have a little bit extra money to retain the garbage that is the New York Times. So my first issue with them is a spectacularly written uh, essay, a guest essay from Diana Butu. Mrs. Butu is a lawyer and former advisor to the negotiating team of the Palestine Liberation Organization. So basically, she's a member of the PLO. Fantastic. So the New York Times decides that they are going to share uh, an essay where she is just, you know, airing her grievances, just sharing her despondence that Bibi Netanyahu will be back in power protecting the Jewish people, my children, from Palestinians murdering them. I mean, she is just completely bent out of shape. And the New York Times, with the help of one of their accomplished journalists, put together this op-ed, this sob story for our reading pleasure. So I'm going to read it to you so you could commiserate with this miskina. All right, here we go. As the prime minister-designate Benjamin Netanyahu finalizes the formation of Israel's most extreme right-wing government to date, I, along with the other Palestinians in Israel and in the occupied territories, am filled with dread about what the next few years will bring. Every day since the elections, Palestinians wake up with a what-now apprehension. And more often than not, there's yet another bit of news that adds to our anxiety. Are we talking about the anxiety you feel when a siren goes off because Hamas are shooting missiles into Israel? Is that the anxiety? Because I, I, I feel your pain on that one. But let's continue. The racism is so acute that I hesitate to speak or read Arabic on public transportation. Well, that's funny because I use public transportation and the actual announcements are in Arabic. And that is for your convenience, which is incredibly ironic because I would never get on public transportation in an Arab neighborhood and attempt to speak Hebrew or English for that matter. You, on the other hand, are taking Israeli public transportation safely to and from wherever it is you're going every single day. You're welcome. According to a 2016 Pew Research Center survey, 48% of Jewish Israelis agree that Arabs should be expelled or transferred from Israel. If that is the alternative to being stabbed and blown up and uh, driven over and terrorized every single day of our lives for the last 70 plus years, then yeah, that would be a good option. If you could stop being terrorist, you all could stick around and we could all have a nice life together. But let's continue. We Palestinians live knowing that a vast majority of Israeli politicians don't support an end to Israel's military rule over the West Bank and Gaza Strip, nor equality for all of its citizens. No, we don't. No, we don't. Because if you have a phone, you can see for yourself that there is nonstop terrorism being perpetuated in those neighborhoods. And the reason that the army has to be there, the reason that my neighbor's children have to go to those neighborhoods and risk their lives standing in those hell holes is to prevent terrorism. Because if they weren't there, what was going on in Janine would be going on in Beit Shemesh. And this is not a chicken before the egg conundrum. This is, there was a chicken, the chicken are the Palestinians, and then there's the egg. And the egg comes after the Palestinian terrorism. 
without Palestinian terrorism, there would be no IDF in those neighborhoods. And if they would stop being terrorists, we can all live happily ever after. But I digress. Let's continue with this absolute trash. It's only a matter of time before we are gone, my friends tell me. Okay, I have to stop again. There, the Palestinian community is growing exponentially every single year. The, the concept that perhaps there is some sort of genocide going on is so far-fetched, ridiculous, and unfounded in facts that anyone with a, a computer can look up the information themselves and see how the Arab families are growing every year and having babies in our hospitals that we are, by the way, treating when something goes wrong. But those are just minor details. And this is the best part. I mean, if this is fit to print, then it's all you need to know about where the New York Times stands on the political spectrum. And let's put it this way. It is so deep in wokeness that they are the most awake, awoke people in the history of uh, insomniacs. She writes, it's blaming the victim rather than the aggressor. The Palestinians are Nebuch, the victims. And the Israelis who are living here in their ancestral homeland, the land that God promised to Abraham that would be theirs, the land that they cultivated when they finally returned here after suffering the Holocaust, being practically annihilated by Hitler, Yamach Shemai, those Jews, they're the aggressors. And we, the Arabs, the gentle, docile, peace-loving Arabs that surround this teeny tiny country, we are the victims. I mean, this is just rich. And then the article goes on to talk about Ben Gvir and his positions. And then it wraps up. Uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has spoken of equal measures of freedom, security, opportunity, justice, and dignity for Israelis and Palestinians. But what guarantees will he be offering to ensure that Palestinians live in freedom and security with this new government? Uh, don't be terrorists. Just don't be terrorists. And then you could all live happily ever after. I mean, it's, it's pretty basic. This is not rocket science. Just don't shoot rockets and we can all live happily ever after. The article ends, there is little hope that this won't happen this time too. And what was unthinkable, but a few years ago will become a reality with Palestinians inevitably paying the heaviest price for Israel's electoral choices. Wrong again. The only thing you are going to pay the price for is supporting the PLO and Hamas and Fatah and the Lion's Den and every other group that's cropping up day after day in your terrorist infested neighborhoods. You don't like the way things are? Go ahead, fix it. But it's not Israel's fault. That's right. But thank you, New York Times, for printing this very comprehensive, um, empathetic piece to the Palestinian people. I am sure that your readers, I am sure that your readers, oh, and I also love that you included a picture of Bibi looking particularly menacing with a gray stone wall behind him and the aggressive triggering Israeli flag. I mean, that that's just so wrong. Right there. I mean, don't you know that some of your readers could just fall apart seeing that? It's ridiculous. But I'm not worried. I, I know that your readers are just going to eat this up and they are going to use this as more fodder to procure anti-Semitism in all its forms. But don't worry, Americans. President Biden's got you. He has put together a counter anti-Semitism group to fight, listen to this, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Because God forbid the White House should address just the anti-Semitism. Instead, we're going to clump it in with Islamophobia so that we don't trigger the Muslims because we're actually terrified of the Arabs. So President Biden, you can wax poetic about how you're going to support the Jewish people and fight anti-Semitism. But until you take a look at your own party and call out the anti-Semitism that's coming from the Congresswomen and the state representatives that love railing against Israel. I mean, between that and the New York Times, I mean, we're, we're in this alone. I mean, who are we kidding? We are in this alone. But never fear. Never fear, because Hashem, the God of the Jewish people, he never leaves us alone. And that's all we need. This week's episode has been brought to you by Mayor Panim. Mayor Panim is the official sponsor of the Weekly Squeeze, and I am here to share their story with you. Mayor Panim is a brick-and-mortar charity organization here in the land of Israel whose tremendous work has garnered the attention and praise of prominent Jews around the world who have seen firsthand what Mayor Panim does for poverty in Israel. 
There are 179,600 Holocaust survivors in Israel, and Mayor Panim is involved with so many of them, making sure that they don't live below the poverty line. They also cook thousands of meals a week. I will be in their facility tomorrow to see firsthand how they prepare and deliver the meals for all the families and all the immigrants and all the children who cannot afford to buy fresh food. So what can you do to help? Well, as the year wraps up, Mayor Panim needs to meet their financial goals so that they can cover the costs of all the tremendous things that they do. And they reached out to me here at the Weekly Squeeze to ask you, my devoted and lovely listeners, to help by supporting them with a donation of $18, $36, $100, whatever it is that you can give towards poverty in the land of Israel. The link is in my show notes. Head down there with one click. You can make a difference and lend a helping hand to the poor Jews in the land of Israel. Every dollar helps. Thank you so much for giving. Mayor Panim on behalf of the Weekly Squeeze. All right. Yesterday was Yutes Kislev, and I had the privilege of talking to a high school in Baltimore about the importance of Jewish music following a day of festivities celebrating the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidus, the day that the Alter Rebbe came out of jail, the founder of Chabad Hasidicism, the author of the Tanya. This is a day of deep introspection and celebration in the Chabad community. And I thought it was an opportune time to share a story about my great uncle, a Chabad Hasid, who spent over 20 years with his brother in a Siberian prison um, because of his Jewish activism. So yeah, Jewish activism is in my blood. So this is a really beautiful story written by Hannah Machkin. She's my second cousin. And her father-in-law was Reb Mullah Machkin, my great uncle. And she recounts uh, a Yutes Kislev story. Here we go. The story takes place in Leningrad, the original capital of the Russian Empire, as it came under siege from German forces in September of 1941. I feel like I'm going to add some dramatic music. I'll do that post-production. Although hunger was not the only hardship that the citizens of Leningrad faced, famine was the main cause of death, as thousands perished under those unspeakable circumstances. Communist authorities had tried to destroy Jewish life throughout the Soviet Union, and the siege only intensified the struggle, the agony, the torture, the helplessness. Many heroic Hasidim fought endlessly to keep the flame of Judaism alive in themselves and others. Their mysterious nefesh surpassed any description that my limited imagination could perceive. I tremble at the thought of such bravery and dedication. Reb Mullah Machkin was one of those brave Hasidim. He was born in Semyonovka to his esteemed parents, Reb Peretz and Henya Machkin. Shortly after his bar mitzvah in 1931, the family moved to the city of Leningrad, where he spent his youth observing authentically faithful and immensely wise Hasidim. When the bombs began to rain down on the city, many Hasidim escaped deeper into Russia towards perceived safety. Reb Mullah stayed behind to fulfill certain tasks. It was the winter of 1941-42. Leningrad wept. Atrocities lay beneath the snow and there were stains of grief behind the whiteness. The moon seemed to know the painful sighs that echoed in many hearts. Its pale glow, a faded smile, a hint of light and life. It was Yotas Kislev. Whispers of secret songs and deep truths filled the world. Hasidim felt the imposing spiritual strength. Reb Mullah, still trapped within Leningrad, yearned to be with his fellow Hasidim. He wanted to forbring and connect and celebrate the special time known as the New Year of Hasidus. Surrounded by a humanitarian catastrophe and heavy religious oppression, Reb Mullah was committed. His inner flame would burn through the frost and the anguish. As winters raged and countless coal-tired hearts ached for a morsel of nourishment, Reb Mola managed to procure some slivers of food and made his way to the home of a respected chassid, one of the very few that remained, Reb Avram Yeshaya Shapiro. The home of Reb Avram Yeshaya was filled with intense sorrow as starvation and hunger loomed over the desperate souls of his family. Disease and heartache threatened their existence with the unseen world of survival beyond reach. Reb Mullah brought this meager yet valuable piece of food into the Shapiro home, along with indescribable conviction and courage. The strength and spirit that only a chassid can own. Obtaining food was miraculous enough, and to come by food with the proper kosher standard was close to impossible. Reb Avram Yeshaya, who was already bedridden as his body was coming to hunger, refused to eat anything. Reb Mullah stood near Reb Avram Yeshaya's bed. It was Yotas Kislev. In that moment, a soft melody, a trace of purity, a distant song hung in the air. Three chassidim, one heart. Their souls see what is invisible to the eye. They forbring. It was then time to sing the Alter Rebbe's Nigin, and Reb Avram requested to be elevated to a sitting position out of respect and reverence. 
His friends embraced his fragile body and held him lovingly and dutifully. They sang the most powerful niggin on the most powerful night. Time stood still. Reality was silenced. Locked in that moment of love and unity, there was only truth. Voices unblemished and refined. Voices that let the dust of despair settle into eternal sparks. All right, that is the first part of our Fabringen. If you've never been to one, welcome. The second part of our Fabringen, well, we have a special guest here today, the one and only Avram Fried. Um, he reached out to me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I reached out to him numerous times. He's here in Eretz following the phenomenal summer concerts, a series of back-to-back concerts every single year, this time of year for the last 14 years. And Avram Fried, of course, is the lead singer, and he just finished all of those shows. And instead of going straight to Ben Yehuda for ice cream, he got on the weekly squeeze with me to share with you, my dear audience, a little bit about that experience and, of course, a few inspiring words from my favorite Jewish singer of all time, Avraham Fried. I hear you. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Check, check. Avraham Fried is in the house. Thank you so much. Welcome to the weekly squeeze. What a treat. It took 68 episodes. 68 episodes for me to prepare to have the schuss of having you finally on my Jewish entertainment news show. Not a minute too soon. Welcome. Thank you for the invite. How's it to be in Eretz Yisrael? It's a beautiful time of year. You got me actually at a, I'm at a very high, high, high right now. I love catching artists after after concerts. That that whole week is just like you're floating. Uh, I just got back from the 14th event in a row at summer in Benenei HaOmar in Yerushalayim. 14 events in five and a half days. And my voice is still working, so I can't complain. <laughs> Hashem is with you. The forces are with you. Indeed. Indeed. I'm very humbled. It was amazing. It was amazing. I want to talk about it. I want to get into it. But first, tell me how it is to be in Eretz Yisrael. I know that you are a frequent flyer here. I know that um, this is practically your second home. You've traveled back and forth from America. You've probably lost count at this point. Do you feel... Um, safe here? Do you feel when you walk in the streets here like a sense of trepidation and fear ever? Or for you, is Eretz Yisrael the safest place like the Rebbe said, and you're as comfortable as, let's say, I am? I feel very safe, Baruch Hashem, as long as you don't go into any dangerous areas. It's it's wonderful here. Uh, the energy here is second to none. Um, with all the problems here, people you meet are just always happy. They're just... Uh, <laughs> They're just energetic, and uh, yeah. they keep you on your toes. We're one of the happiest countries in the world, according to a recent poll taken, and I, I could attest to that. We're, yeah, we're here five years already, and Baruch Hashem, it's been such a gift. Are you adjusted? I am as adjusted as it gets, yes. I am I am at the point where I'm already discussing with the Ilam how I feel about Israeli politics. And when I got here, I didn't know who who is who in the zoo. So I've certainly come a far, 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 I'm far along. Um, Beautiful. So tell me a little bit about the summer concert. My uncle Mendel was here. Um, he's in Sfas today, but he went to two, two shows and he said it was phenomenal. Tell us a little bit, because I know the American audience is not aware of this summer phenomena that's been happening here over the last few years. They have a women's concert. They have for children. I mean, this is choreographed to a T. It's at, at a, the most professional level. Describe a little bit what this is. You know the saying, you know, never saw a simcha. Whoever hasn't seen a production of summer really is, is, is missing something fantastic. I think summer started 10, 14 years ago, um, celebrating Yutes Kislev, celebrating the release of imprisonment from the Alter Rebbe, uh, the founder of Chabad Hasidus, and um, later Rabbeim called this the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidus, because that's when it began, when he was released from prison on a uh, much greater uh, level and a much greater um, widespread outreach to bring Chassidus to the entire world. So they celebrate Yutas Kislev with productions, putting on concerts. And here comes the, the real surprise. It's only Chabad Nigunim. You would think, oh, how boring. Chabad Nigunim? Two and a half hour concert? Chabad Nigunim only? Like, must be very boring. Star-studded. Akiva is there, Ishai Ribo, Idane Madi. I mean, this is a star-studded event. They pull out all the stops. Only the best. Every year, the biggest names and um, they do such a production, the band, the lighting, the staging. It is Broadway level. I may use that. It's unbelievable. 
people walk out of there inspired from the Gashmias, from the great production, and from the Nagunim. I, I was crying last night when the 2,000 people were singing Dalsa Rebbe's Nigun with no singer, just a band, a clarinet, and an and a interesting violin that he was playing in the Orkarmi. I don't know what to call it, some instrument. And the crowd was just singing with their eyes closed, the Alter Rebbe's Nigun. It was Zim Kipper. It was just unbelievable. And then for, for a singer, the crowd that summer, I don't know who hires these crowds, where they come from. What do you mean? Yeshiva, there are a lot of yeshiva students, no? A lot of Bakram. What I mean is as soon as the lights go down, the place erupts in simcha and energy and doesn't stop for two and a half hours. So I walk out there. I don't need to work the crowd. I don't need to put any koyach into, into get them get them excited. I think, you're sell- I think you're selling yourself short. I'm pretty sure they're excited that you are going to be there and they're enjoying your performance. Every singer, they walk out on stage and the crowd is phenomenal. Phenomenal. So it's just a spiritual, physical combination of simcha, Yom Kippur, crying, davening, dancing. It's just an incredible experience. I don't know how else to describe it. You got to come. I'm so happy that you're still appreciating it after all these years. That's very meaningful to hear. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. You're, you're heading to Florida next. I mean, who knows? Between You had 14 concerts in three days. Maybe you have another 42 before then. You're, you know. But from what I understand, you're going to my Uncle Rafi. That's the next... Uh, yeah. I remember those shows when I was a kid, and I was t- I was mm. telling my father the other day they were so basic. I mean, Uncle Maishi used to open for you, and it was it was it was like we parked our minivan and we got some popcorn and we had a plastic folding chair and there was a couple of yep. musicians on the stage and two big speakers and it was free. <laughs> and, and now, I mean, I know that they're they're doing it indoors this year. They have six thousand seats, I believe, and it's seven seven thousand seven thousand seats, and that they sold out. My father said up. that Rafi is schwitzing because it's quite an undertaking. Do you ever feel like yeah. you miss the simpler times or are these advancements of technology, they're just such a wonderful contribution, you would never look back? You know, that's a good question. I think there's ace, there's time for this and there's a time for that. I think um, at a 7,000 seat uh, auditorium, um, they probably want a, a professional produced show. But I happen to love the intimate kumzit style, we can just not be so tied down to the music and to count the beats and to count the entrances and exits and coming in, coming out. Just a little more of a kumzit style, which has its its advantage. It can be a little more open and loose and then talk a little bit more, bring a little more, sing and talk. I, I happen to like that. But I think on this, on this level, it's got to be... Uh, Top, top, top production. Yeah, yeah. And I, I know that um, in the firm world, the productions are getting more and more professional. I think A.B. Rottenberg put out a video. It was just the biggest production I've ever seen with the ships and the pirates. It was just like a, a little out of control, a little bit out of control. <laughs> Sometimes you have to rein it in and remember, you know, it really is about the music. Um, I saw that you, yeah, I saw that you promote, you're, you're involved in promoting the 24-6 app, which I'm very excited about. So I didn't, yes. yeah, I didn't really speak about it much yet, but the twenty four six app is basically a Jewish version of Spotify, and it's a great way to filter what our children are listening yes, to. Madrin, yes, kosher to no Madrin, yes. So yeah. you, you, they made a very cute video, and and I had to ask, you are up for anything? You'll do the green screen, and you'll do the dancing, and you'll do the choirs. You're you're pretty uh, flexible and easygoing when it comes to what you will do. Did they ask you to put on the spacesuit? Uh, no. No. They didn't. <laughs> do you have it? I probably would have. You probably would have. Not? That's what I wanted to know. If there's anything that you're like this, you know, at, at some point, you know, <laughs> or you're just like up for whatever's fun. Three years ago, that, um, who was the organization? They did a concert in Madison Square Garden uh, during a circus of Mar- um, Barnum and Bailey Circus. Three, three rings and forget where it was. And um, one of them even suggested to me, do you mind coming out sitting on one of the elephants? But I declined that. <laughs> I'm trying to remember if uh, I saw a picture of you on elephants I, and I guess you passed. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, a bit of high. I'm sorry. I remember I went to sing once years ago and, and a little girl came over to me after the show and she said, how did you get here? Did you fly here on your own airplane? And I remember thinking, mm. I'm pretty sure I took the bus here. <laughs> but there's definitely wonderful experiences that you have when you're in this line of work. And I'm glad that you can enjoy them and appreciate them for what they are. 
met some incredible, incredible people over the years. Um, not just in the business, fellow fellow performers and artists, but people, people who have become connected through the music. And oh, I can write a lot of books about very, very special people that I've met over the years. Incredible people who have taught me a lot. They deal with challenges. Some of them are are faced with very, very difficult challenges, and um, just incredible people. So I'm very humbled by that. I am waiting for you to create an album that is deeply personal. Is that something you've ever considered doing, writing something that's more than just commercial pop music? Not that your songs are uh, generic in any way. They're very, very personalized, and you can feel your your essence in all of them, and you could tell that you're deeply involved in the arrangements and in the compositions and in the lyrics. But have you ever considered writing something more in the style of even Ishai Rebo, where it's like a stream of consciousness, and you expose a little bit more of your your personality as a you know as Avram Freed instead of just these big pop albums that are made for success. Good question. I have not gone that gone down that that road. Although Father Don't Cry was actually based on on a personal event where I saw my father cry one time, and that shook me to the core. So I so I thought to myself, if my if I can't handle my father crying, how can we handle Hashem crying? As we're told, he cries. So that, that gave birth to the song, Father, Don't Cry. But uh, I feel like I give out my, my soul and what I'm feeling in the English songs that I do. Not, not, not so personal, but that's, that's what I'm feeling at the time. Whether it's Keep Climbing or Father, Don't Cry or No Jew Will Be Left Behind. I think I, what people should understand is that for you, the topics that you're singing about and the purpose that your music serves is deeply personal. Correct. And that's why when you well, sing about Yiddishkeit and well, when you think about when you sing about Eretz Yisrael, that is who you are and that is your essence. So you don't need to write an album about anything that's mundane or folksy because that's not where your passion lies. Correct. I think there's plenty of that out there where people are shedding everything and just saying what they're feeling and uh, what they're going through or the pain that they're in, which is which is very, um, I guess it has a crowd. But I I, I would rather stay positive and uplift and inspire. And whatever I'm feeling, I'll discuss with my wife. <laughs> <Just walking. laughs> Is she in town? Is she here? She's here. Are you kidding? <laughs> Is the rabbit's in around? She's here. Regards. I love that. Great. Why not? Take advantage of a beautiful weekend. Oh, hello. How are you? Thank God. Good, good to see you. Questions and good answers too. <laughs> Uh, it's an honor to talk to you, and, uh, and I never really had the opportunity, even though I've been attempting here and there over the years, but now that I have an official podcast that Baruch Hashem is on the top of the charts, I figured we'll give it another go. Beautiful. Good for you. Good for you. All right. One of the things that I've always appreciated about you is how hardworking you are and how committed to your craft you are. And there's so many people that are doing amazing things in the firm world. I was just telling a guest that I have for Monday that I'm so impressed with the level of creativity that the Jewish community has reached at this point. We never shortchange our audience. And that's something that you've always been very particular about. You come rehearsed, you come prepared, you once went to Australia, you couldn't sing, you were very honest and open about that. You didn't just sing to a pre recorded track. And I think that has been um, a consistent uh, theme. I came back six what? months later. You came back six months later? Oh, you came back six months later to sing. To the end of the world. Yeah. Pick up that concert. Yeah. Yeah. I honestly prepared an entire list of questions that I had for you. And then when I punked, went to open them up, everything was gone. So I had to freestyle up until now. Wow. And now I'm just going to ask you, I'm just going to ask you if you could please share with us one more insight, word of inspiration for my audience that is coming to the show for Jewish entertainment and trying to aspire to live a life where Jewish music is a priority. I spoke last night to a school in Baltimore and then a night before to a school in Arizona and I have a campaign on social media called Real Jewish Music. And I'm always pushing, pushing the message, hacking the message. Jewish music is our culture. And the word culture is from the word kol taira, culture. <laughs> Beautiful. And I try to explain to yeah, and I try to explain to the girls that when we embrace our culture and our music, it doesn't have to be the best music in the world every single time, but it's ours. It's ours. That, that says it all. I I think that Elam uh, Haza, especially in the last, uh, well, I mean, always since Adam ate from the uh, from the eight sadas, there's been a, a a certain taiva, a certain desire, willingness 
to try what's outside the garden. That's just how the Yetzirah works. And he keeps being very creative. You know, the Torah stays the Torah. Torah can never change, chas v'shalem. But Elam Hazah keeps changing the technology. T- today's things that the kids are, are, you know, can have at their fingertips is a great challenge to something that doesn't change, just stays as it is. So the fact that people are looking elsewhere and they, they get good productions elsewhere, they get good songs, otherwise it wouldn't be, wouldn't be enticing, it wouldn't be exciting. But that's the struggle. That's the struggle. You go a little bit out of the garden, but then you have to remember you are, you're coming from the garden. That's where you should be. So Jewish music, I think, in the last oh, many, many, many years has given the Jewish listener no reason, really no reason to go out of the garden because you have every shade, every color, every kind of music you can imagine that's now in the, in the box, in the garden, what we can call Jewish music. It entertains, it inspires, it uplifts, it, it works, it works. And um, I was talking to some people the other day, and I asked them a question. I said, um, what is the first quote we have in the Torah that Hashem, that Hashem said? What's his first quote? Some said, Ayeka. Some said, Anechi Hashem Elikecha. I said, you're missing a whole, all of creation. The first quote that we have from Hashem is, let there be light. Then the question is, wait a second, Adam was created yet? No. No. Malachim were created yet? Uh, no. No. Second day. Animals, animals, birds, fish, nothing. There's nothing on the first day. So who, who was the light for? Why, why did you go straight to the light? Because that was the mission statement. I'm creating a world, and my whole point of creation is, I want you to bring light into this world. And everyone has that job, to fight the darkness, to be a candle, to be a, a, a light unto the nations, or a light to your neighborhood, a light in your own home. To know that we are candles, we are, we are pillars of light that need to bring light to the world. And we can do that through a good sheer, teaching olive bays, song, music, telling stories, writing songs. Everyone has their gift and their way of bringing light into the world. And if we keep that in mind, I think that, that'll help us know where we're coming from, where we are, where we should be going. And um, just remember, we are, we are sources of light. We are towers of light. And not to get sucked in and swept away by the darkness, which is very enticing. But it's, as the song says, lonely and dark, it's dark and lonely down there. You know, so. Well, coming from someone who just spent many hours under some very bright lights in front of a very bright LED wall, I'm going to take that message to the <laughs> bank. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes. Enjoy the rest of your trip. And may we continue to meet at auspicious times following uh, positive experiences in both our lives. Amen. And good luck to you. Keep shining your light. And Thank you. Isn't that beautiful? It's always a pleasure to hear from Avraham Fried, whether it's in song or in conversation. He is super successful. And let me tell you something, folks. I am pretty sure that he went to Ali Taita. Take that, New York Times. That's right. Now, this is why it is so particularly upsetting that there are certain individuals who feel like the yeshiva system needs to be dismantled. And until it is, they, the New York Times has the right to share whatever they want from whoever they want based on whatever information they derive to be what they consider honest journalism um, in order to accomplish just that. You know, just forgetting the absolute dissemination of the Jewish education system that took place under KGB Russia, um, aside from the Hasidic communities that fought for the longevity and the continuity of the yeshiva system. And that is why we still have a yeshiva system today. And that is extremely important and precious. So while it's important that we educate our children properly and God forbid not abuse them in the process, it's also important to remember that every American child has the right to a proper and balanced education that is deeply rooted in the values that their community holds dear. And that is perfect. Unless, of course, you're talking about religions that run counterintuitive to the American way of life. But the Hasidic yeshiva system is not counterintuitive to the American way of life. As a matter of fact, it's perfectly aligned with the American way of life, 
And I think there are plenty of statistics to back that up, that the Hasidic communities are safer, cleaner, less crime-ridden. And yes, that includes blue-collar crimes as well as violent crimes. And for that reason alone, the yeshiva community should be allowed to determine what their children are learning. And when the time comes, or as the time comes, for change and for adaptation of their curriculum, it's only going to work if it comes from the inside out. It's not going to work if you bring disenfranchised Hasidim to your paper to talk about their personal experiences and air their grievances and their vendettas against that community. That is not the way to bring change. On that note, I'd like to welcome Emma Jo Morris to the Weekly Squeeze podcast. She's a wild child of right-wing media, political editor at Breitbart News, formerly the New York Post. She wrote a very forceful and comprehensive article um, on why the New York Times is once again getting their facts wrong. Before I begin, I'm just going to play our little whistle. So if you have some kids underfoot, well, send them packing. Emma, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I, I'm so excited that you contacted me about this topic. You know, I, I often get requests for other things, and, and this is something that really interests me, and I'm glad that we're doing this. Yeah, it's definitely close to your heart. I read your article today in Breitbart. I highlighted it, and then I listened to it. You know, you can now, like, play articles. You could just listen to the recording. And I listened to it, and it took 20 minutes of my time, but I enjoyed every single second of the robotic voice giving me this information because I could tell that you really did your homework on this article. I tried, you know, I tried and listen, I'm not from, I'm not going to pretend to be from, I'm not going to pretend that I went to a seminary or whatever. I, I didn't, but I'm a Jew and um, I'm a journalist. And when I read the New York times story, it did not resonate. Not only did it not resonate, but it smelled like a rat. Um, and it didn't take me very long, you know, I mean, I think that it's funny because when I was reading the article back after I wrote it, it came off like an oppo dump that was just like handed to me, but it wasn't like I put it together piece by piece. And I just, as I started, you know, this is how journalism is supposed to work and how it always has, right. Is as you start to kind of ask questions and dig, you know, you find more information and more questions and you dig and find more, you know, so it, it ended up kind of coming together in this in this like spectacular 6,000 word or whatever. Thing. I know it, it's, it's a piece to be studied. It's a work for the ages. <laughs> and that's why it's really just yeah. inquiry, you know, it's just inquiry, which I try to, yeah, I, I'm addicted to nicotine um, as great journalists before me were, and I try to keep their spirit alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate the fact that you're not um, based in that way. Because this is something that is a very personal conversation for people. And it's almost impossible to have this conversation without, you know, thinking about your interests or the interests of the people that you care about in your community. It's just very, very touchy. So let's get right yeah. to it. The New York Times put out another, yet another article this week, um, written by Elisa Shapiro. The first thing I did was research all the contributors to this particular article, which, by the way, were photographed beautifully. Clearly, the New York Times spent money sending out their photographers. You know, they wanted to create that empathy that you connect to the people who are speaking their minds here and that are, are suffering on behalf of the yeshiva system. So we have here um, Beatrice, let's see what it is, Beatrice Weber, who is a comedian, not not that funny, <laughs> but she is a comedian that uses this kind of fodder in her sketches about her experience in the religious community, being a mother of 10 and a grandmother, and she has a book coming out, and this is very Julia Hart-like, you know, there's an agenda here, and look at me, this is my story, this is my perspective, I'm open, I'm free, and I am powerful, and I'm going to say my experience. So that's the first contributor to the article. Um, then we have Hani Getter. She is a proud, out gay parent, a spiritual leader and teacher, an established motivational speaker, certified holistic life coach, a spiritual counselor, a licensed social worker, and a ritual creator. Enough said. Um, and then we have Javi Weisberger, who is she, her, a queer, atheist, Jewish mom of three. And lastly, we have Malki Widger. I don't know much about her. I just know that she accused Rabbi Ephraim Bricks of sexual harassment and... That's pretty much her story, so she's part of the Me Too movement. Um, basically, it's safe to say that this article is very based, <laughs> and it's trying to depict a picture of victims of the yeshiva system. 
Now, I'm not saying that their experiences are not true and not their reality. But on the other side of this conversation are who knows how many thousands of Hasidic Jews having a wonderful experience in the system, as I could attest to, and you can attest to. And that's why, or that's where this article goes so wrong. Exactly. That's exactly the case I'm making. And that's, you know, I wrote a long thread on Twitter that was kind of, I think, the catalyst for this conversation now where I'm saying like these experiences I don't doubt are real you know and and that's horrible and I'm sorry that that happened however there's two points to be made about like after that the first is the, what the New York Times does and I'm not criticizing listen I'm not even criticizing these activists you know they seem quite triggered by what I'm doing on Twitter and, and by my reporting but it's actually not about them at all Something happens to you in your life, it inspires, you know, a path for you and, you know, you follow it and fine. Okay, whatever. My my problem is with the Times because what the Times did is they took these experiences of these individuals and they did this kind of clever thing where they make it a matter of fact for the community writ large. And that is just obviously clearly not the case. Um, and the second point that I make is not only do they do that, but the New York Times really bills itself as an objective news source. And it's highly influential um, off of that lie. And it is a lie because, you know, this article is just one example, but I could pull out a binder of examples of times where the New York Times is claiming that they're on this like objective, like moral high ground. And and that's literally not true. This, this, this um, read like something you would pick up in a tabloid waiting online in the grocery store. Of course, it was a, it was totally sensational. It, and it's just that's that's why it was like so I mean it's transparent but then once you start to look into this it's like actually even more nefarious than that because not only do they claim to be objective and this is the truth or whatever they're making so much money off of this and 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 they're making money off of not only like lying about the community but in my opinion actually exploiting these people who um are clearly very troubled and and have a lot of trauma. Well ha- did they not get feedback on the first article? I could only imagine that uh, there was a barrage of of letters and emails. There was also a barrage of subscriptions and and Fox News reported this uh that the Times has said outright that they are ha- finding this beat of Hasidic Jews very lucrative um and that they are going to make it a series and continue continue to keep going there because it, it it's sensational. It's a community that people don't feel like they have access to and feels very mysterious. And then the New York Times is giving you this unique insight and and they are making um, a fortune off of this um, in, in what's total propaganda. It's unfortunate because the organizations that are fighting for a higher education in the yeshiva system, their message is getting lost in all of this because this is too aggressive and not the way to succeed in making a change. It's completely counterproductive. You have to know, and you know, as as a journalist and as any person in communications, as I'm sure you know too, you have to be aware of who your audience is um, and who you're talking to. And, you know, effective communicators meet the people who they're speaking to where they are and, and speak in a way that resonates and penetrates um, with the person that they're that they're addressing. And this does literally the opposite of that. You know, I had a quote in, in the story that I published on Breitbart um, from a woman who is Satmer and a mother of four sons um, who are all in these schools, obviously. And um, she said like this type of like public activism um, via the New York Times and then via the state of New York, like that isn't going to be what we respond to in any kind of positive way. Mm-hmm. And she said it makes people harden kind of in their position and say, this is like, our thing and and anything that you force us to do, we are going to dig in even harder um, in opposition, which obviously I understand. Well, let's I mean, get to the specifics, because I know people listening might not have read the New York Times article and are not sure exactly what I'm talking about. So the article mm-hmm. kind of regurgitates the original article, and now it's just more personal, like you said, sensationalized. Mm-hmm. And they're, of course, talking about, you know, what would happen if the kids moved out of these schools? There would be this intense culture shock. And then, of course, if you're involved in a divorce, the, the courts get involved and they become this pawn between you and your spouse and the school. It kind of also reminds me of a scene that I watched of Julia Hart berating her 15-year-old for wanting to be in yeshiva. And I'm thinking the emotional distress that you inflict on these children when you put them in the middle of the struggle is worse than the actual education that they're it lacking. Was, it, you know what I mean? 
mean? It tried to personalize it and kind of make it more compelling by having these cases of these divorced um, women um, who were going off the derech and then wanted to take their kids basically with them, you know, and put them in eat. Or even, you know, in some cases there, there were mothers who just wanted them in different yeshivas that have more secular education. But they all put the picture, they all put their children into this article. They are all in, photographed in this article. Well, that's, so that's what I was going to say is that it was trying to be compelling in, in making it personal to these women and you meet them and it's so intimate. And But really, like, I mean, for me watching it, it felt like I'm looking at a profile of some of the most narcissistic parents I've ever seen. Um, you know, it's one thing to be in an unhappy marriage or be in an unhappy lifestyle, you know, and you want to do something else for yourself and you have one life. And I'm not here to judge you about that. And I don't think anybody has the right to judge anybody else's marriage or their decisions in their marriage or to leave their marriage. It's not what I'm saying. But but the case that this article was basically making is that there is like it was implying that there's something abusive about keeping kids in the lifestyle that they grew up in after one of their parents has has decided that, that lifestyle isn't for them. And I think that that case was not only extremely weak, but it made me feel like I more adamant in wanting to, to defend, you know, the civil law around this, which is like, no, like, you can make your decisions about your life as you want. And you obviously have the right to your children and to your relationship with your children. But in terms of turning their life upside down, because you've decided to take a, you know, a sharp left turn in yours, that doesn't feel compelling. And in fact, it, it makes me feel like this is like some sort of exercise of vanity um, in the New York Times. Uh, you're going to walk away from it and you're going to throw a match and burn it down on your way out. Like if you're not comfortable, by all means, get out. And I'm not saying you, there's no support. There is much more support than there used to be for Hasidic people who leave the fold. We're not in the 80s anymore. And it has become more acceptable for people to announce publicly, this is not working for me. This is not working for my children. I need a change. And there's schools mm -hmm. that accept students that are transitioning maybe from a more extreme lifestyle, a more religious lifestyle to a more modern Orthodox one or to just, you know, a traditional Jewish one. And, and the backlash is much less than it's ever been. So it's not like we have to break out all the stops here and, and absolutely smear the schools to get our point across. The point is across. We've, we've been having this conversation for a couple of years now. Well, that's it. And it just felt like really cringe and inappropriate to be reading it in the New York Times. Like I'm not, and like, again, like I'm not religious. I never was religious. Yet. I'm just whatever. Like, I'm just an observer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the Chabad in me, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, I have no, like, I don't know, whatever. It's not my reality. And it's not my life. And it's not my truth, as they say now. But, um, but I'm here to critique journalism. Um, and that's really what all of my work is about on this topic. It's like, this is like really shoddy journalism. Um, and, and not only is it shoddy, but it has like these tremendous implications for people who are innocent and normal people. I consider the community, like the Jewish community, the Orthodox community, even the Hasidic community, the Satmar community, whatever, extremely well-adjusted, nice, peaceful people who have very low rates of homelessness, have very low rates of drugs, have very low rates of violence. And I don't really get what this crusade against them is about other than obviously activist journalism um, and money. And, and it's very disturbing. Yeah, to you mentioned money. You wrote here, a breakdown of funds provided to Breitbart News by the Hasidic Yeshiva shows there is not any money going to religious education, as as they claimed. Um, funds come in the form of child care vouchers to parents, child nutrition programs, student transportation, mandated services such as testing and attendance tracking, so on and so forth. And in the original article, that was a point that was vehemently argued that they're, they're not receiving more money per student as far as, com you know, comparable to public school students. And that was literally just thrown in there almost just to be a little more anti-Semitic by suggesting that the Jews are trying to swindle the government for money for their religious practices. That was implied, wasn't it? There was a lot of um, implying of money laundering and a lot of implying of swindling. I don't want to venture into a the anti-Semitism conversation because the truth is the authors are Jews. I'm not here to like, you know, be a moral judge of them or their character or their intentions or their heart, whatever. I mean, I don't care. Their journalism is bad. It's it's bad. It's just bad journalism. And that was what my story was about. It was the the New York, it was about the New York Times um intentionally kind of framing up a story um and framing up a community. And then I went through 
like 10 examples of, of why I'm saying that and, and the examples that I found just from my investigation um, that I know about. So you know, it's that's it. It's like, I don't know if they're being anti-Semitic, but the, they were implying a lot of horrible things. And in doing so, they were smearing like 40,000 families. Right. Well, uh, another interesting thing that you wrote about that piqued my interest is that you bring up Yafed, which obviously is spearheading this entire advocacy campaign. Yeah to encourage more secular studies in the ultra-Orthodox school system. And there's this constant struggle because on the one hand, I support that the Hasidic school should possibly and potentially improve the way the children are learning secular studies. I think it is important and we should hear the many stories that are coming out of the system from students who feel like they've been shortchanged. Those are valid conversations to be having. However, the firm community is very clear where their boundaries are, and their boundaries do not allow certain things to be discussed bar none. They are not discussing anything related to uh, gender reassignment surgeries. They're not discussing anything related to sex education. Uh, I mean, certain things are just never going to happen. So when the approach is all or nothing, then like, you know, we're not even having this conversation. So you shared that there was a clip posted on Twitter from a May 24 panel <laughs> called Let My People Learn, hosted by Yafed. And this girl, Chani, spoke, was it? Javi Weisberger. So she said that I think a sound sex education and knowledge of diversity, it's part and parcel of a wholesome education. That's not happening. Now, you said also that Naftali Moster kind of distanced himself from that by claiming he didn't host this event, but you said the flyer said that he did host this event. And sometimes when you are working with people that have a very clear agenda, you, you get into that bed. <laughs> you made the bed and now you have to get into it. Like there's again, like this is all the same theme where there's nothing wrong with having an, a political agenda. OK, uh, Breitbart is a right wing news outlet and we are conservative. Our editors are conservative. You can click on our masthead and you can look up every single name on Twitter and you will see openly conservative beliefs. And you know exactly what you're getting when you go on Breitbart.com. And then if you want to get an alternative perspective to have a rounded, you know, a well-rounded opinion about something, you go on the New York Times or on CNN, and you can get the, uh, you know, another framing and another perspective of the same mm -hmm. story. What these people are doing, which is so nefarious, um, is they are misrepresenting their views, and they're trying to obfuscate what their views are. And that was kind of what I nailed them on when I reached out for comment, because on the one hand, their website is like, we just want a basic education. Basic is a very broad word. So when I reached out to Yafed, I said, what do you mean by that? And I have this clip from this Zoom conference or whatever that you did that doesn't, that talks about something that appears to be departing from a basic quote unquote education, you know, where she's talking about diversity and sex ed or whatever. And this, by the way, is not the sex ed from your parents' generation. Okay. This is a sex, a version of sex ed that is something that would make me Stoma, blush. Stoma okay? and Gamora. <laughs> yeah. That's where we're headed. And, and listen, I'm not, whatever, you know, it's, this is not just the basics. Okay. That's the point. And so I, I write to Master and I said, hi, you know, your website says that you're featured in this New York Times article as a very intense advocate for this. Okay. Your website says one thing, this clip of you and, and your colleagues says something totally different. Okay. Which is it? And he kind of was very uh, caught off guard for sure. Um, I don't think he knew who I was or who Breitbart was. And I actually have quite a high profile name in media. So I thought that was kind of funny that he didn't Google me first. But anyway, um, he kind of at first says, I see what you're saying. And then he's like, but Yafa didn't host that. Um, and then I, I sent back a flyer that was from his Facebook and I was like, this flyer says you did. And that flyer, by the way, can be found in the story. And he kind of just gets really weird about it. And, and to me, like, I, I mean, I just, I transcribed basically the themes from the, from the P, uh, from the email correspondence in my piece, but it was this very strange dance that he was doing where he didn't want to come out right and say, and then he kind of ends it with, well, I would support whatever the government wants. And it's like, well, this is the same government that's putting things in curricula that are absolutely repulsive. Um, 
you know, and, and sex ed is one of them, but there's other things, for instance, like the 1619 project, which is being taught in New York public schools, um, as, as some sort of rendition of history. Um, but it is not at all a rendition of history actually. And, and it has, a, despite having a Pulitzer, multiple historians have come out to say that this is just, you know, nonsense. Um, so, you know, there are many things that the law dictates that, that you know, you wouldn't call a quote unquote basic education. Um, so, you know, he kind of got lost in his terms there, but that was all very revealing. And it just goes to show that, yeah, but I mean, they're not, they're, they're an activist organization, but they're, and they're not serious. I mean, these are hyper-political, hyper-partisan and hyper-progressive advocates, um, who are not talking about the same thing that we're talking about when we talk about a basic education. That's the moral of the story. Right. So what is what is the ultimate goal here? I always try to look at the extremes on both ends. If New York Times would be successful in accomplishing what their goal was with, you know, publishing these articles constantly, just one after the other, attacking the schools and calling them out for what they think is a subpar secular education, what would their best outcome look like? And if the Hasidic schools just turn a blind eye and absolutely ignore every single article, every single accusation, never ever uh, reply or conform or make any change, they're doing it this way, you don't like it, it's my way or the highway, what, what's the outlook for them? I think it's a really interesting question, you know, and, and given what we're talking about here, about what's going on in New York public schools and in public schools across the country and across North America, actually, and privates for that matter, secular privates are another thing. But um I think it really opens up an interesting philosophical conversation about what an education is and what depriving somebody of an education is. And, and I'll give you um, an example just to chew on and we can talk about it. But, you know, I went to I'm Jewish, but I went to a Protestant girls school for high school. I grew up in Montreal and the Jewish schools in high school just weren't that great. So my parents put me in this like school and and it wasn't very religiously focused. It was a classical education. Um, and I learned um, obviously science, math, English, French, obviously, um, literature, philosophy, uh, you know, uh, visual arts and, and like, you know, what you would imagine as a basic education and, and more than a basic education. I got a very good education. Um, but I was, I graduated high school in 2010 and that was already at a time when, um, Mandarin was already emerged as the, the international business language, um, and tech was already well, um, on its way to being the most dominant industry in terms of, um, like how lucrative it is to engage, like what industry is the most lucrative to engage in. So I did not learn Mandarin in school and I did not learn to code in school. Um, nothing like either of those things, actually. I learned languages that are A, international or B, becoming increasingly like less relevant, like French. Um, and and then and then in terms of science, I learned like physics and chemistry and stuff, but I didn't learn coding or programming. So, um, so you know, I graduated with, what I would argue is honestly a subpar education for the modern economy, because my my colleagues in university who did have those skills have now gone on to not be, um, you know, starving journalists and are actually, you know, making an absolute fortune at, at an age that you wouldn't necessarily think they would be because they have these really... Um, refined skills, specialized skills, and targeted skills for the yeah, current economy. Yeah, but you can't economy. compare that to you can't compare that to a child saying that they literally can't read or do basic arithmetic. I mean, there are extremes. I mean, okay, but how many? Like, how many like schools are are producing children who can't read? Well, it's impossible to know because if your reporting is correct, the New York Times is giving information that's inaccurate. They simply did not speak to everyone. Oh, not only that, but I went to a school. I, they don't want to be on. They didn't, they didn't want, want to be on the record. Yeah, put their name on the record, so I won't. But I went to a school that was mentioned in the New York Times article, and uh, it was not the same picture at all. So I just like whatever. Listen, we could like leave the most extreme examples aside. Let's say that percentages in the high eighties of kids from these from communities, and I'm I mean from like not modern Orthodox from these communities are are well enough to do that they fit into the statistics that I wrote in my article that 25% of Haredi Jews are earning over $150,000 a year. Are they being, a, like, I just, I, all I'm trying to say is I think that there's a moving definition of an education that puts you at the best advantage in the economy. Um, I think that there's data that suggests that, that 
from Jews are doing fine in the economy. And I also think that there's evidence to suggest that the quote unquote basic education is actually not even the optimal education for the modern economy. Um, and I think that that conversation is worth having. I just don't think that it's worth having when you're bludgeoning people over the head from, from the office of the New York Times, I guess is the point. Yeah, I'm that's a very good point. And ultimately, you know, this is not a change that's going to happen overnight. This is something that has to be driven by the parents because the parents are always the strongest force when it comes to deciding right. what, what changes have to right. be made to curriculums. And when that day comes, when enough of them feel like their voices need to be heard, they will be the best resource for that kind of transformation in their school system. The New York Times is not going to succeed. Um, neither are any of these women featured. I, the thing that I also thought was so cheap about the Times is that if you're going to do this and they claim, you know, they spoke to like 300 sources and whatever and watched thousands of documents and I don't know, whatever. They claimed that they had like reams of evidence for what they were saying, but what they were missing was actually what, okay, what are these schools teaching? What are they teaching? Because in the meantime, they are producing high earners. They're also producing fathers who stay with their wives and raise their children who do not have which is the invaluable, which is invaluable. Rates, of course, of the secular world, they're raising men who don't use drugs. Like I said, I, you know, I listed off the litany of statistics um, earlier in this episode that show that there are like, like, just like, on a human level, like they're doing better. So what are they teaching? And then and then from there, it's like, okay, maybe you could say it's, not a conventional education, but is that not an education, like to be like equipped for like real life? It's just remarkable to me that we live in a society where we accept the most bizarre ideologies from every single kind of person who wants to be called this pronoun or that, and we all have to accept it and hail them for being brave in their choices. But when it comes to deciding that we want to teach our children mostly Torah, you know, and maybe we want to save the secular subjects for the end of the day, which we did when I was growing up. When I was growing up, we learned Hebrew studies first because we were awake and it was a priority to have Chumash before we got to social studies, which we did in the afternoon. And we enjoyed very much. But still, as a religious school, that was our priority. And that's something that was instilled with me until today. The school accomplished that by making the Torah studies a priority. And here I am a religious observant Jew all these years later because of my education. So like you said, yeah, and I also I think that there's also something to be said for the involvement of parents and the responsibility of parents. You know, you don't leave your school to raise your children. Um, and if you're doing that, then your kids are going to be shortchanged, but it's not the school's fault or it's not the system's fault or the man's fault. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, take, you know, for, you know, I, okay, my school had a liberal bent as all teachers coming out of the academia sphere have, almost all. Um, you know, my teachers were very liberal and we learned about, you know, concepts in with a, like a liberal lens kind of, or like a left wing lens. And, you know, my dad would make it a huge point every night over dinner to ask me what I learned at school. And it wasn't like I was allowed to say like nothing or I don't know, you know, as kids do like he was like really hardcore about making sure that like we actually had a conversation about the stuff that I was learning and and he played a very active role in educating me and it's not like I was homeschooled but I mean like over dinner you have an hour or two hours before bed like where you're hanging out with your parents and like if you have such adamant beliefs that your children are learning something that you hold dear to you, which my parents did. Yeah, it's fairly easy to pick up a point. book from Barnes and Nobles, a, a workbook and, and go over it, you know, because after supper. It, like, I'm not saying your kid's going to go to NASA if you're the one teaching them the science, you know, or whatever. But I just mean like if you have values that you don't feel like are being taught in your school that you want your kids to have, they're your children and you can supplement their education and you ought to because that's engaged parenting. You know, it's like I remember learning in school that the um, that nuclear bombs were horrible, you know, and that was a horrible thing about by the United States. And they were telling us that, like, you know, it was just this like kind of like Holocaust kind of action. And, you know, I came home and said that and my dad was like, you know, obviously people feel that way. And that's a point. But then there's also the point to be made that the bombs, you know, prevented a land invasion, which would have been inevitable and maybe killed more people and maimed more people. So, you know what I mean? It's like there's something to be said about the symbiosis between parenting and, and education that can't be understated. And like you have Yafet and the Times pretending that like education happens in a vacuum. And like, I just don't think that that's realistic. And I don't see that in the from community 
actually ever, um, or, or I haven't at least. I would be disappointed to see the baby down the drain with the bathwater because there yeah. are circumstances of of abuse and deviant behavior in the school systems like they are everywhere. We're human beings, no matter what we practice, what religion we believe, we're all susceptible to bad behavior. And that stuff has to be called out and it has to be a conversation. And those teachers or students or faculty members obviously should be publicly condemned for that kind of stuff, but it's getting kind of mixed into the messaging of the whole education system, how it should be controlled and directed by the government. And that's just like a lost cause. So like we say in Hebrew, like chaval, because there are things that need to be fixed and they are being fixed. And the New York Times, just like getting up in the middle of this and, and throwing this little pity party for disenfranchised Hasidic Jews every couple of weeks, hoping that something good comes out of it, well, it's not going to work. There's absolutely no way that they're going to accomplish what they think they're going to accomplish. If anything, it's just going to make things worse. There's no such thing as an area of society that doesn't have its own system and doesn't have its own you know, values and, and ethos and the way to act and the way not to act. And, and that's not going to ever work for everybody in the system. So it's not, again, like, I hate this, this framing that Hasidic Jews are so unique in all of these different ways, because every, like every system has people who don't fit in it. Every system um, oppresses certain members of it or certain members feel oppressed by it. Um, and, and at the end of the day, like every, when you grow up and you're an adult, everybody has a choice about how they want to comport themselves and what community they want to be in or what system they want to be in. And nobody's saying you don't have that right. But just like, if I want to go into international business and make 50 times more money than I am now, I'm going to have to just take some Mandarin classes. You know, that's perhaps you need training in order to enter a new way of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's not special to any Hasidic community. It's like, what are we talking about right now? And and every community has people that don't fit, that don't like it, that don't feel right in it. And it's like, okay, so grow up and and f- forge your own path. Like that is part of American citizenship, and that's just part of life. It's like, figure it out. You got to just figure it out with the hand with the cards that you have and the hand that you have, and and that's life for everybody. Whether you're Hasidic, whether you're secular, whether you're not Jewish whether you're an alien, it does not matter. It's like that, like, I feel like on some level we're missing, like in a bigger picture sense that, that these people are often expressing like the the trials of life that we all experience and that we all have to reckon with at a certain point. And, and some paths are harder to forge than others. And it's your choice about how badly you want it. Right. I hear that. I do. Well, Thank you for being here and for doing your deep investigative research on this particular article and all the things that you write about that matter to my community and to yours. And I do hope that you will be back and we can continue to have these meaningful conversations. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. So there you have it, episode 68 of the Weekly Squeeze. Don't forget to donate to Mayor Panim if you are enjoying my show. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to them. Every dollar counts. Leave me a five-star review if you're feeling generous. Tell your friends that you're enjoying this squeeze. Drop it into a WhatsApp group, and I will see you all on Monday.